morning. Y'all go ahead and be seated. And if you'll open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians in chapter 1. Pastor John told me a couple weeks ago that we're going to be starting a series on 1 Corinthians, which I love. And I especially love preparing for this passage because on the cover, just looking at it at, at a glance, it seems very, very simple. It seems very much like Paul is giving a simple command, don't do this. Uh, it's very easy to read scripture that way, but as I started to dig deeper in, into the study, I realized, as, as I often do when I study scripture deeper than when I initially look at it, that I was wrong. I don't like being wrong all the time, but I was okay with being wrong this time. Um, but one pretty crazy scenario that I thought of when, when looking at this passage is uh, since we're, you know, pretty deep in the football season now, imagine a football team, a college football team, that is about to make a play. And there's a coach on the sideline. Let's say the first coach is Jeremy Pruitt of Tennessee. And he's, he's yelling out one play to do. And some of the players are listening to what he has to say. Then there's a second head coach right next to Jeremy Pruitt calling a different play. Let's say it's Nick Saban from Alabama. You got some of the guys on the field that are not listening to Pruitt, but they're listening to Saban. Already you can tell something's about to go wrong here. Let's say there's a third coach standing with them. Let's say that's Mark Rick, who used to be at Georgia and now is, is at uh, Miami. He's calling a third play completely separate from the other two. Let's say one of them's calling to, for him to make a pass. One's calling for him to do a quarterback sneak. One's calling for him to just pass it off. Then let's say there's a fourth coach next to all three of them calling a different play. And because John's not here, I'll use him as an example. Let's say Pastor John is the fourth coach on the sideline calling the fourth play. And Lord knows what, what play he's trying to call, as if we can even understand what he's saying to begin with. But lo and behold, there are a couple of players on the field that are actually listening to John's play as opposed to the other three. Don't ask me why. You might need to check their mental health later. They might have gotten hit in the head a few many times. But all four of these coaches are out there calling different plays. As soon as the play starts, what's going to happen? They're all going to start running into each other. Everything's going to go wrong. The other team's probably going to take the ball from them and run all the way back for a touchdown. Everything's going to go wrong in that play. And you know what's even crazier about that scenario is none of those, none of those coaches are even the head coach of that team the players on the field are actually Clemson. A completely separate team from all four of the guys that are on the sideline coaching. Now, obviously that wouldn't happen. If it did, I would love to watch that live, unedited, and see how crazy it got. Especially having the sky cam zooming in on John's face, just being so confused, not knowing what's going on. But that's very similar to what's happening in this passage. 
we know that Paul has written this letter for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons specific to this passage is to call out people for following the ways of someone who is not Jesus. They sound good, they are actually followers of Jesus themselves, but they're subscribing to their way of thinking, their particular way of thinking, and that's part of the reason why they have led their church astray. So there's several things going on here. We know that Corinth was known for its drunkenness and, it, and its sexual promiscuity. Not the church, but the city itself. It was, known, it was known for being a bad place. It would be like our Las Vegas. You know, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth until you go out and then everyone starts talking about it. If someone was ever talking about someone who had become a drunk, they would say that that person had been Corinthianized. And that's a pretty bad thing to be said about where you live. The culture of Corinth was slowly beginning to define the church, and this is a separate problem. We have the issues of the people following other Christians as if they were Jesus, but there's also some issues that were a whole lot more plaguing in the church that the culture was starting to define the church. They were treating communion like it was a typical banquet, getting drunk every time they had the chance. They were accepting all kinds of sexual and anti-marriage ideals and they were even still giving food offerings to all different kinds of idols. This was happening in the church. The few high-status people in the church that were, that were there were, were, were also wielding all kinds of influence on the rest of the church and telling people what to do. It would be if this room, of everyone that was in here, there was one just regular church member that was calling the shots outside of the pastor. Debates came over class issue in the church. It, it, it was easy to do this since at that time churches were not like the way we know them today. I mean, you think it's hard to get to know people at White Oak when you have two campuses. But when you look back then, these buildings didn't define the church. Church was just made up of people showing up at, showing up at people's houses. So there was just multiple, multiple house churches spread all throughout Corinth. Imagine trying to keep up community in that church. Where would you have that business meeting? And the high-status people could obviously house more people in their house because they had the better homes. They had the bigger places to, to gather people. They had, they had the bigger living spaces. So more people would have, in, would have been influenced by the people leading those house churches. Even though all the homes together were made up of the Corinthian church and they were all in community together, it was as if the split of the church into various homes was harmful to the church. And hear me when I say this, that wasn't the issue. But they made it the issue. And here's what I mean by that. The split, it was as if the split of the church into various homes was harmful to the church only when sin got in the way of some of the home leaders. That's when all this division started happening. That's why Paul starts out this letter after giving a thanksgiving, giving a greeting, and saying, stop being so divided. And there are hardly any differences between us and them. We share a lot of the same problems in the church today, as well as in our culture that romanticizes the, and, and idolizes sin in such a way that, that it should make us sick. Yet churches are slowly allowing one little thing at a time from their culture to come into the church and taint the purpose of the church. So the main thing that we need to see 
that God wants a church that is unified. God wants a church that is unified. So, now that I've given us all an, enough, enough time to be able to turn to 1 Corinthians 1, starting verse 10. The word of the Lord. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you, and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by members of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? I thank God that if I baptize none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say you were baptized in my name. In fact, I did in fact baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't recall if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. And we thank you so much for allowing us this time to be able to come in fellowship with each other, love on each other. Most importantly, hear from you today, God, in corporate worship. We ask that in all of our busy weeks that, that we've had, temperature changing, probably causing some sickness in some of us today, all kinds of things that may be weighing on our heart right now, God, family situations, health situations, situations at work that may be causing us all kinds of frustration and strife. We ask that whatever distractions we may, we may be bringing into space today, God, that those do not be a distraction as we hear from you. Help us keep our hearts and our minds completely focused on you and what you have to say. We don't want to hear from me. I don't want to hear from me, God. We want to hear from you. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, I went outside the realms of the typical Baptist preacher a little bit in this. Instead of three points, there's four. Now, please don't stone me for that. Because the last two points are actually really short, so it, it almost makes up for it. But the first thing we see in this passage is this. God's church is not divided on the foundation. God's church is not divided on the foundation. We start here in, in, in verse, verse 10. Before Paul even begins to acknowledge that they're messing up big time in everything that they're doing as a church, notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't start by calling them idiots. He doesn't tell them to turn or burn. You see the word urge here. Now I urge you. And just FYI, you're going to be learning a whole lot of Greek today. But the, the word that's being used for urge here in the Greek is also the same word that's used in Acts 9.31 for comfort. It says, so the church throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up and going on in the fear of yeah, and going on in, in, in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it continued to increase. So the word, it's not so much a command, it's Paul up front saying, what I'm about to tell you, yes, it has to do with what, with what bad things you're doing in the church, it has to do with the wrong stuff you're doing, but I'm not here to 
lash out at you for that. I'm not here to make you feel stupid. I'm here to bring you comfort. I'm here to make you feel good about what you can be moving forward. We could talk all day about how this whole chapter in, in Acts 9 is, is, is what the Corinthian church was missing altogether, but the point here is that word comfort. Paul recognizes that he is speaking to other brothers and sisters in Christ and that they are less likely to listen to his correction or advice if he was being antagonistic toward them. So he establishes up front that he wants to bring them comfort by what he is about to tell them. I mean, imagine anyone coming up to you. If you were wrong about anything, would you want someone to get angry with you about it? Or would you want them to be a whole lot nicer about it? Hey, I love you. I understand that you've been doing this, and I just want to help you get through it. What's going to sound better? That or, you idiot. Stop it. Stop right now, or I'm going to hit you in the face. I'm going to be a whole lot more likely to listen to the nicer person. And I have to preach that to myself because I'm guilty of that sometimes whenever trying to give correction to certain people. But how often do we get frustrated with someone in the church or, or in our family, and all we do is, is yell at them to make them feel stupid and wrong? How often do we give correction to someone who needs it in a loving and caring way? Sometimes it can be difficult because of the severity of the problem and the arrogance and unwillingness of, of, of the person being the troublemaker. But the heart of Christ is love and restoration. So we must always reach out in a spirit of love and restoration before church discipline is, is, is ever attempted. Then, Paul says that in order to fix the problems in the church, all in it need to agree on what they say. He's yet to even get into the things that they do because they don't even agree with each other on, on what they talk about. I mean, it's very easy for us to give lip service to each other and say, yeah, I'll do this for you, but then we don't do it. They weren't even being that nice. They were just straight up disagreeing with each other all the time. It's not as simple as agreeing on the same thing, whatever it may be, because they could easily be, they, they could easily get on the same page and, and, and agree on treating communion like a party, you know, sexual promiscuity. They could be agreeing on, on all the bad things they're doing in, in church. So then what's Paul saying here? The question is, who does everyone in the church need to be in agreement with? Paul knows there is an objective moral barometer that they need to be in agreement with, and that is who? Jesus. And Paul continues to uncover this truth as he goes on. He recognizes that there is division in this church, and it needs to stop. The word division in the Greek is schisma, literally means to tear away at something, to pull it apart aggressively. The church was allowing so much rampant, sinful lifestyle to come into their church from the culture around them that it was destroying their unity and effectiveness as a church. Churches are obviously different around the world and operate differently. Some churches meet for a couple hours with a Sunday school lesson, a worship service, and they go home after scripture's been read and the songs have been sung. That's how we typically do it here in America. But several years ago, for two months, I was in West Africa, and I attended a church that was not like that. 
Their services often lasted three or four hours. Because they wanted to make sure that they added the conga line of everyone going around the church outside so everyone can see them for about 30 minutes. Imagine if we did that. I wouldn't have a problem with it. There's nothing wrong with that, no matter how jarring it was to do that after not understanding a single word the pastor was preaching for about 45 minutes because he was speaking in French. But it was okay. The key purposes of why the church was there, meeting together, was there. We fellowshiped, we praised God, we learned. And the cultural things that, make, that made that church what it is was not the sinful aspects of, of, of their culture. They did what they were supposed to do as a church. They kept the foundation there. Worship, learning from God. The difference between that and the situation in Corinth was that Corinth was, a, was allowing cultural aspects into their church that were sinful. Whenever a church allows culture to dictate that they praise God less and spend more time on the things that don't matter or God forbid the things that tear us away from God, that's a serious problem. If we as the church are supposed to be the body of the Godhead, that being Christ, being the hands and feet that represent him to the rest of the world, at that point, when we allow sin culture to get, in, to get into our fold, at that point, we're not doing our jobs and we're even spitting in Christ's face. We continue on, we're going to learn another Greek word here. The word united here in the Greek is, and I'm not a scholar, so I'm probably going to say this southern. Catartizo. I'm okay with being wrong on that one because that one's complicated. This word means repairing or mending something back together that was previously broken as a way of making it complete and perfect. It's an easy illustration to think if you tear a t-shirt and someone sews it back up, but it's, it's, it's so much more than that because you'll probably see the the line of where it was sewn back up but this is this is going beyond that and saying it's making it complete and perfect is that not an incredibly accurate description of what christ does to us when we accept jesus as our personal lord and savior we were completely broken in our sin we were headed toward an eternity of suffering all because we did not have god since we have accepted christ we were not just put back together but we were made into entirely new creations free of the consequences of sin and now we have a relationship with God which is the most complete and perfect thing we could ever experience so what Paul is saying here is that the church in Corinth can be mended, repaired complete and perfect again if they were just unified in Christ and what he desired for them as the church the union being united here is to be in both understanding and conviction, Paul says. The understanding would involve reasoning, affections, emotions, motives, and intentions. The conviction would involve conclusions, purposes, goals, and objectives. It's being united in Christ, both in kingdom thinking and kingdom action. So Paul is saying that when you're unified in Christ as the church, you can answer two very simple questions. Why and how? Why should we commit to what God tells us about the church 
And how can we live that out? Sounds like two pretty simple questions, but they were getting it wrong every single time. When we are unified as the church under the premise that God is in control and that you're living for His purpose and will for your life, you can answer those two questions. Second thing you see is this. God's church is not divided by false perspectives. God's church is not divided by false perspectives. And this, get, and this gets into the next couple of verses. Well, the next one verse. Verse 12. It says, What I'm saying is this. One of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. It's very easy for us to want to link ourselves to a person in power that we can physically see, even in the Christian life. Non-believers do it all the time with celebrities and politicians. They live as if that person is God to them. We can sometimes get, get accused of the same thing in church. Some of us want to subscribe completely to the ideas of a particular theologian, Martin Luther, John MacArthur, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, your run-of-the-mill reformist or Arminianist or whatever it may be. But look what Paul says about those who subscribe their entire way of thinking to one person who isn't God. And we're going to have fun with this because one of two things can be happening in this list of four different people. One, Paul could be saying that you claim to be with those people who are believers. You claim to belong to them, yet you're allowing all this sin to get into the church. And I think part of that is true, but delving into the context of what each of these groups would have represented makes a little bit more sense because each person has their own personality. So why would Paul just throw these four names into here? And Paul humbly calls himself out first along with those who claim to belong to Paul. We know a lot of great things about Paul. He's a great missionary great evangelist he led, he led a lot of people to to christ paul and paul even founded this church he was there from the very beginning there were people who were in that church from the beginning with paul when he established it they were likely so in love with the way paul set up the church that these are the people in the church who wouldn't ever want to change a thing this is the way the church has always been it's 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 been good enough to grow the church back then, so why can't we go back to the, to the way things used to be when it was good? That's what some of these people are likely saying when they say, I belong to Paul. Then he specified those who belong to Apollos. Now, Apollos was very similar to Paul in terms of him going out as a missionary and, and reaching out to people. But Apollos could speak in a very eloquent, smart-sounding way. And everything he said sounded so amazing and wise, and he used all these big words. It sounded like it was Shakespeare preaching to you. If you remember, though, there was a time previously when Aquila and Priscilla had to pull Apollos aside and say, hey, your theology is, is a little bit jacked up. Um, can we get back on track to making things about Christ again? They had to do that. So Apollos was the free thinker, the let's make everything new kind of guy who would have been in a stark contrast to the people that were saying I belong to Paul people who were saying I belong to Apollos these would be the people in church who would love 
the new way this guy sounds about changing things and adding a light and smoke show to, to, to the worship service for no reason. And he writes these cool-sounding new books with new Christian insight that likely has nothing to do with Scripture, but he knows it sounds new and cool, so they'll make them popular, and he'll sell a whole lot of books. These are the people who are all about change for the sake of change. And we have the next group of people. He talks about those who belong to Cephas, who we know is Peter. We know Peter was one of the disciples who had a whole lot of issues. Even when Christ was still alive, he denied him three times. He cut off that dude's ear. And after Jesus rose again and sent him into heaven, Peter had all kinds of issues with holding to his traditionalism and being a Jew. He had all kinds of issues with putting Jewish traditions over the Great Commission. Paul even had to call Peter out in another letter for how he was leading people down the wrong path of legalism and not reaching out to the Gentiles properly. These followers would be the people in church who say, you have to wear a certain thing, you got to keep your hair a certain length, you can only read the KJV because if, if it was good enough for, for Jesus, it was good enough for me. And only sing from that good old Baptist hymnal if you want to be saved in my church. These were the legalistic people, very likely. Then Paul talks about those who claim to belong to Christ. Now, what became very confusing to me, and, and this is where I knew that I was wrong in initially reading this passage, and I'm okay with that, was I'm looking at this list of four groups of people, and it says, I belong to Christ, and I'm assuming... Okay, so those are the people that are right in the church. But as I'm looking at it further, I didn't learn very much in, 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 in English class, but when you group things together like that, the assumption is that they're all supposed to portray the same message. So what Paul is saying here is that all four of these groups were causing problems. And that was very confusing to me until I started to delve a little bit deeper. Why would Paul add this group here? Isn't it right for us to live by Christ's commands. Isn't that the whole point of why this church was tearing itself apart to begin with, was that they weren't doing that? It sounds good, but if you really followed Christ, why would Paul group you into these other groups of division? These are the people who were probably fed up with the other groups and set themselves up as being more spiritually mature as than they were. They looked at themselves as being too spiritual to lower themselves to the level of becoming identified with any of those cliques. I'm so spiritually mature that I'm going to sit on my high horse and judge you for being too sinful. Now, I'm not going to help you, as Christ would have me do. I'm just going to sit up here and, and judge you and look at you very snidely. Looking at all the sexual promiscuity in the church, there's also a chance that these could have been the God told me people. God told me I could make communion into a drunken party. God told me I could cheat on my wife and run off with another woman. God told me I could live however I want because God wants me to be happy. And you want so badly to tell those people, well, God told me you're an idiot. But again, think back to the foundation of all of this. Paul is approaching this in love and forgiveness 
and those with those people that are very clearly going down the wrong path, it's so hard for me to do that sometimes. But again, that's what Paul is 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 doing here. We're supposed to give him correction and love. So these are also the people who are presenting themselves as super spiritual. But ask yourself this question: If anyone is coming to you and saying, I'm a super spiritual person, are they super spiritual? Probably not. It would be like me saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write this book about humility and how I'm the best at it. Because I know I've got it going on and, and, and I'm going to sell the most copies, but I'll be humble about it. But I know what I'm talking about when it comes to humility. It doesn't make any sense. No one who's humble would ever say they're humble. No one who is an actual spiritual person would ever say, I'm a super spiritually mature person. You have all these warring mindsets, these, these, these cliques, these, these factions that are bashing into each other. It's again, like the football illustration. You're not going to have a church body that works. Paul says he knows what's, what's going on here if we look back at verse 11. Just 18 months after he left, and is now in Ephesus because Glo- because Chloe's people in, informed him on what was going on. And Chloe lived in Ephesus, very likely lived in Ephesus, not in Corinth, because Paul would never throw someone under the bus who was in who was in the church that was having all the issues. She likely had some sort of power or fame for people to know who she was. Whatever the case may be, the the importance is that she went to Paul to ask for his help in the church. So all these warring factions are going on. And Chloe goes, goes about correcting this the right way. And this says two things here. First thing is that even when she was not likely part of that church, she cared so much about the overall church body enough to want to see change happen, to want to see correction happen. It points out one of the issues we see in, 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 in cities as big as Chattanooga as we're in. There are over a hu- over a hundred Southern Baptist churches in the county, not to mention the other church, th- other churches in different denominations. And the question that we could be asking ourselves is, how well do we reach out to those from other churches and care for them, as opposed to bashing the other church denomination for how wrong their beliefs are? And the second thing Chloe does here is, Chloe went to Paul, a well-known spiritual leader, because she knew. Not only that he knew that they were wrong, but he also was someone that they would listen to. We know this later when, when he brings up his own name with the factions. So it was, it was typical then, as it is for us now, for people to build up personal bitter rivalries over things like sports and even more often politics. That was happening not just in the church, that was happening all throughout Corinth. People were fighting over sports teams and, and politicians just like we, we, we deal with today. And again, another Greek word, the word rivalry here is Aries, which means contention, strife, debate, quarrel, the things that cause the ripping apart of the body. And this word implies that everyone was ready to come to blows on their beliefs. Is that not so much like how we get today? It's so easy for two people in the church to lack in their relationship because their sports teams are different or even their political parties are different. As we're about to, s- and as we just saw, 
with these factions that Paul's brought up, when you let any one person guide your way of thinking that isn't God, you do nothing but worship a false idol. So the third thing we see is this. God's church is not built on anyone in it. God's church is not built on anyone in it. And here's what I mean by that. Paul makes a pretty sarcastic series of questions to prove his point about who they should give their allegiance to. When I first, again, when I first looked at this, I didn't fully appreciate how sarcastic he was getting. But I thought of a, a, a pretty good example to kind of illustrate what, what he's saying here. Think about if you're the person in your home that is responsible for taking out the trash. And the, in, in, my, in, in our house, that's me. And if I didn't do it, it would be like my wife coming up to me and saying, oh, you don't want to take out the trash? Oh, so the trash is just going to walk itself down to the trash can outside. Oh, so, or the trash fairy is, is going to come in here and do your job for you. Pretty obviously being sarcastic as a way of saying, you're being an idiot, do what you're supposed to do. She, wouldn't, she would never say that to me. She would just say, um, why is the trash still here? But it, it, it's, it's this kind of sarcastic message that, that, that Paul is uh, portraying here. In verse 13, he says, is Christ divided? That's the, why is the trash still here question. Then he says, was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Paul's making it pretty obvious by still being alive that the answer is no. He, it, I, I love how sarcastic he, he's being towards them. He says that He's not the one who was crucified for their sins or that they were baptized in his name. Christ died for each of us, and by Christ's authority, we are identified with him in one corporate body that belongs to Christ. Christ is the one whom honor is due. Not Paul, not Apollos, not John Calvin, not John MacArthur, not Martin Luther, not your pastor. Christ alone is the one that we owe everything to. When Paul talks about those he baptized here, he's being very nonchalant about it. He says, yeah, there were a couple people that I baptized. But he's not, he's not discounting the, the importance of baptism. Don't, don't hear him saying that. He's saying that the fact that he only baptized a few people in Corinth proves that he never tried to generate any kind of following for himself. That was never his goal. The important thing for us here is that we should never do anything in the Christian life to try to elevate ourselves. And there's several ways that we tend to do this without even realizing it. So you led someone to, to accept Christ last week. That's an incredible thing to experience. But that does not mean that you ride that emotional wave of that for the rest of your life so you don't do anything else. You give a lot of money to the church and your offering. I mean, praise God for your faithfulness to, to the cause of this church, but that does not mean that you get to look down on, on anyone else who doesn't give as much as you. You get to baptize someone because you spent so much time investing in them and they finally accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's fantastic. I hope we all get to experience something like that, but that person is not your disciple. A terminology issue that I faced a while back when studying for my discipleship ministry degree was 
It's very easy for when you're discipling someone to claim that that person is your disciple, and that's not the case. Anytime that I've led a discipleship group, I make it very clear up front that they are not followers of me. I'm just helping them to become better followers of Jesus. And those people may come and ask you spiritual advice and look up to you as a spiritual leader, but they don't owe you anything. They, just like you, owe everything to Christ alone. The fourth and final thing we see is this. God's church is not distracted from the main thing. God's church is not distracted from the main thing. Let's look at verse 17 again. It says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. So, Paul's saying two final things here. One is that God did not send him here to baptize. Paul's saying that baptism, communion, worship, prayer, the church building, community service, being good parents, spending all your time doing all the things that go along with being a Christian are not as important as the main thing that brought you to salvation in the first place, the gospel. The good news of the gospel has to come first for any of these things to have any value. Paul recognized that he was sent here to preach Christ, not himself or anyone else. And remember, it, it is to him that we owe everything and should commit everything to. Cannot stress that enough. And the second thing that Paul's saying to finish out here is that neither his or anyone else's smart-sounding speech would ever elevate the gospel and lead someone to Christ any better. In fact, he said that kind of thing lessens the gospel that's being heard. If I came up here trying to sound like the smartest theologian ever or trying to, shout, trying to sound like Shakespeare as a way of selling the gospel, it would never work as simple as the truth of the gospel itself. This is the reason when I, when, whenever I'm preparing for a sermon and when I'm about to start preaching like I did earlier. When I pray, you'll hear me pray, God, don't let my words be the ones people hear. We want to hear from you. I always make sure that I, that I pray that because I don't ever want my stuff, my way of thinking, my theology, my messed up ideas to get in the way of what God's trying to say through his word. I don't ever want to try to get in the way and empty the effectiveness of the cross as Paul is saying here. I understand that trying to make my sermon sound as well-structured and poppy as possible is not going to do anything for you. Only the truth can do that. I just want you all to know the truth of God's word, and that's it. That's all Paul wanted to. So then what do we do with this? Paul's made a pretty clear couple of key statements here that he wants to bring comfort that he wants to end the divisions in the church he wants to lead people away from being committed to a faction or a person and being committed to Christ again for those who have yet to accept Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior we've said a lot about Jesus today 
He's the one we owe everything to. The fact that you're here right now, the fact that you don't have to spend eternity separated from the Father because of your sin, and the fact that if you confess your sins, ask for forgiveness and confess that Jesus is Lord, that you will have a relationship with him forever, you can have that today. If you want to know who Jesus is, come talk to me. I'll be down here as we're about to go into our time of response. For those of us who have already done that, what can we take away from this message this morning? Three things. One is that if, if any of us are living in sin, that does not just mean that we're harming our relationship with God. We're harming our relationship with, with the rest of the church. If that's you, ask that you go to God, ask for forgiveness, and turn away from that however you see fit to do that. If you need to stay in your seat, you need to come down to the front. However you need to do that, move as God's calling you to respond. Maybe you're some, you're somewhat like the people in the in the Corinthian church, and you look up to all these influential spiritual leaders and think that your witness isn't good enough. So hear me when I say this, because your good news is the gospel. Your witness matters. You may not think you're good enough without clinging to a person's ideas and quoting a bunch of famous theologians and preachers. But your witness does matter because the gospel is enough. Maybe you try to make yourself spiritually superior to, to, to everyone else. Maybe, you, maybe you're stuck in the mindset of everything needing to change for the sake of change. Or you want everything to stay the same because that's the way that makes you feel comfortable. Or maybe you're like the legalistic people in the passage and put ritualistic actions over the simplicity of the Great Commission. Whatever group you identify with in the passage... Whatever God's calling you to to respond to, you respond as you need to. Come to the altar, talk to me, get up, sing, stay at your seat, respond as God calls you to. And again, all of this goes back to Paul making a very clear statement about the church. God wants a church that is unified. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Can't thank you enough for what you did. Sending your son to come die on a cross for us, for our sin. Resurrecting three days later and ascending into heaven. can't thank you enough for the salvation that we now have available to us because of what you did for us. I'm going to say, if anyone here has yet to know who you are, God, that you draw them to you. Draw them to you in an incredible and powerful way so that they have no choice but to know who you are and begin a, a right relationship with you those of us who know who you are. Call us to respond as you see fit. If any of us are living in, in a way that is contradictory to the way that you called us to live as followers of you, convict us, God. We see Paul saying in this passage that we, that we need to be in the same understanding and conviction. Convict us to what we've done wrong against you and, and how we've been living, God. Convict us if we are committing too much to a certain ideal that's not yours. 
convict us if we have idolized a preacher, a theologian, a politician, a celebrity, whoever it may be in our lives that are, that are keeping us from being able to worship you properly, God. And all the other convictions that you've brought in this passage, I know you've brought so many. Help us to respond as you see fit. Family, in this time of continuing to worship, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. strength when I am weak. You are the treasure that I seek. You are my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, you give up, I'd be a fool. You are my all in all. sin my cross my shame rising again i bless your name you are my all in all when i fall down you pick me up when i am dry you fill my cup you are my all in all could come forward and we'll do the offering real quick.